Welcome back to another episode of the Skull Search Podcast. My name is Tyler Fornis, and with me today is a guy who is very well known by everyone. He has done a fantastic job of building a kind of schematic on how the Vikings draft. He is the Athletics Arif Hassan. Arif, how are you doing, sir? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for uh, gassing me up like that. I don't know if I would, uh, I would say I'm that well known, but appreciate it. Well, hey, absolutely. Anybody I talk to knows exactly who you are, which is which is both good and bad, I guess we could say. <laughs> right. uh, uh, that, one of the interesting things I kind of uh, felt while reading uh, your two pieces, which I will make sure I link in the show notes so everybody can see, is that the Vikings have really identified like certain things that they like when it comes to drafting and one of the one of the two trends that we'll kind of talk about is they really like explosiveness with uh, trends like the vertical and the broad jump. Kind of uh, when you were doing this research, what uh, what really stood out to you? Why, why they use those kind of metrics? Uh, yeah, um, I you never really know why because teams don't really want to get into a ton of, you know, the whys, but it really seems like they use these metrics across the board. They use them certainly for the offensive line, but they've also emphasized it more very recently along the defensive line, especially at defensive end uh, where before at defensive end, they used to like care a lot about, uh, you know, the three cone drill, which is a pretty classic test for uh, edge rushers. And they, and they care a lot about it for, um, for defensive tackles. And, you know, when I was able to ask around about it, I was able to get basically essentially that, you know, almost all football is played from the ground up and that you generate a lot of your power um, from your feet, you know, no matter what position you're playing. Obviously, you know, people say that a lot about quarterback, but it's true everywhere where, uh, you know, you need to generate leverage as often as possible. And, uh, and, and especially the closer you are to the trenches, the, the more important it is to be able to um, kind of turn that kinetic energy from the ground into, into something actionable. So, uh, you know, explosiveness for the broad jump has been just a historical, um, you know, knockout factor for them. If you don't kind of meet some of their standards uh, at the broad jump or, uh, and some of the other explosive drills that are just not really willing to consider um, unless you're like a, a very high level prospect that they're otherwise pretty high on. And I think um, two good examples of that would be Pat Elfline and Garrett Bradbury, both of whom missed, I think the broad jump by about an inch. So it was a pretty easy, um, you know, exception for them to make, but, but generally speaking, you know, they care a lot about the ability of linemen to be able to create some push and the best way to measure that at the combine anyway, you know, obviously the film is, is, is pretty key, but the best way to measure that at the combine is uh, through uh, the broad jump, which tests a bunch of muscle movements as you're kind of uh, moving forward. No, I, I absolutely agree. And that makes a lot of sense. And at kind of moving into the offensive line that those explosion metrics, uh, as you kind of alluded to are a really big deal and you do generate a lot of power uh, at the combine. They really only do as far as like weight training, they do the bench press that uh, considering you generate a lot of power from your legs. Is there any reason why they don't utilize something like squats to try and uh, get an extra unit to help measure uh, that kind of explosiveness from the lower half? <laughs> I mean, if you talk to uh, any strength and conditioning coach across the NFL, I would say, um, probably 30 out of 32 anyway, or, or something with some absurdly high proportion would ask the same question. They generally speaking, um, you know, the, the strength and conditioning coaches love squats in particular. So that, that was a good one to identify and they would absolutely love for, um, you know, the ability to kind of incorporate that either max squat, which is probably a dangerous one to include at the combine just because players in an evaluation environment might, uh, might overdo it for themselves or, uh, you know, reps of, uh, of a particular weight for particular positions. You know, that's something 
something that uh, for a lot of strength and conditioning coaches demonstrates a functional weight uh, or functional uh, explosion and and functional strength um, that activates a lot of muscle groups. So, you know, that's something that that has been discussed before. And I think one reason that they don't do it, aside from the fact that, you know, something like max squat is, is probably something that uh, or max anything is probably something that that could cause additional injuries to the combine. Um, is they would like to have kind of that record um, to go back on. And so part of the reason that they're doing some of these combine drills is because they've got about you know twenty five thirty years of data on on players, and they've got a good idea of how that translates. The other hand, um, they do have the ability to to talk to all the strength conditioning coaches at colleges, and we're we're for training purposes, they do a ton of squats. Uh, and so uh, you actually do get a lot of information that we don't have available to us, but is available to a lot of scouts that they might be able to incorporate. And so they, they care a lot more about that than the bench press, where, like you said, you're not generating a ton of force um, with, uh, with your legs. And in fact, it doesn't replicate any real world um, football movement at all, because uh, you've got um, your back leveraged uh, against uh, against the ground, essentially, but against the bench, where you just don't have that platform. And so pure upper body strength is not that incredibly important without the ability to kind of functionalize it throughout the throughout the core. So um, yeah, a lot of strength and conditioning coaches agree with you. There is a little bit of signal. It's just not very much when it comes to the bench press. Uh, and, and very typically, if there is signal in the bench press, you would have been able to kind of guess that based off of the player profile. So for example, players that have historically performed poorly at the bench, bench press, and I'm thinking of the two Chicago Bears offensive linemen, James Daniel and, uh, and Cody Whitehair, um, who are both very good, by the way. So it's not even that, that, that it's a, a great knockout factor. Um, but they, they were players that you could have guessed from the outset would have struggled with the bench press. And so you didn't get a ton of new information. So yeah, no, that's, that's a really good question. I don't know the complete answer to it, but I think some of it is, um, with bench press, I mean, there are a couple of injuries, but generally speaking, you, you just don't have a high risk factor for injuries at the combine for that. Uh, and also the, there's a history of data for all the workouts that they do that they've got the ability to work off of. And so I think it's, it's an inertia thing. I, I certainly think that they should include some form of, uh, of, of a functional squat workout to be able to include at the combine. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, especially with something like a max squat. If you're utilizing that at the combine, then it's going to be uh, more apt for injuries. And it is different from the bench press where there's, you're utilizing so many muscle groups and that I know just like my little brother, when he does squats and uh, he'll throw his back out just because he'll put a little too much weight or lean a little too far forward. So I think that was a really good call out. One of the things that you kept incorporating throughout both of your articles, both on the offense and defense And I thought it incorporated really interesting most with the offensive line was that uh, post 20 yards split that I think you called it the fast 20 and how that incorporates, because I think it, it might even be more, uh, more useful information than like the first 10 or 20 yard splits, because it, it feels like it's not so much once you get going or how you're getting going. It's once you get going, do you, are you able to maintain that breakaway speed that why did that kind of stand out to you more than anything else, especially when it came to the offensive lineman? Yeah, um, that, that one was definitely one of the more surprising ones. Like I wasn't shocked to see that it mattered for, say, cornerback, where uh, everyone just kind of talks about how speed matters. I think that's the position um, 
that you know most commonly general managers will defer to something like a 40-yard dash. Um, but you know when I when I started digging into some of the other positions where where teams seem to have uh, where, where it seemed to matter for teams or where it seemed to actually just matter in terms of real world performance, I was surprised to find out that that it could matter for some positions. And like you said, the offensive line that one is just fascinating to me. And so I think that there's a couple of things at play here. The first is that the full 40-yard dash is is a really difficult measure to use because of how it gets trained and how start dependent it is. I mean, it is just such a quirky event. Um, so the way that they time it is uh, it's actually half electronic at the combine. It ends up being a little bit different for how teams use it, but it, it still impacts the way players train for it, which is that it, essentially the first movement sets off the start timer. So if you're rolling forward, if you're uh, lifting your hand before you, you, you start generating explosion off of your, off your break, um, then it starts the timer without really functionally measuring anything important about your speed or explosion. And it can really complicate the way that we measure some of these things. And then they start training for it. And, uh, you know, you get all of these um, sprint and, and track coaches, um, which, I mean, that's just the way the incentive structure works. I don't blame any of the players for wanting to get more money by training for it. Um, but if you've got track coaches teaching you technique and form, um, it might complicate what you're looking for. Uh, as, uh, as, as, a, as a person just looking for kind of the, a pure unadulterated athlete where everybody's kind of on the same level. Now you're looking at, at somebody who's got, and, and this is important stuff too. I actually, I think one of the reasons that the 40 matters is because um, it, it gives us some insight into how a player re reacts to coaching, but you're just still measuring something else. And so that those first 10 yards can be wildly different for players of the exact same speed and explosion based off of who they had as a coach, how well they trained for it, whether or not they moved off the first, um, you know, it, you know, all, all sorts of things. It's such a kind of quirky, unique event that it becomes pretty difficult to measure. Uh, and so a, a kind of a purer measure of speed becomes in that last 20, which, um, yeah, you, you mentioned there's, there's a name for it. Um, so I actually have heard fast 20 before. I tend to use flying 20 a little bit more, A, because it, it, it just kind of sounds better, but B, it's the first term I heard. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, as, as soon as you pass past the 20 yard mark, it's pretty much who you are as an athlete and less how your form is. And, you know, you don't want to tell that to a sprinter. I mean, you know, they plan out step for step what they do, but that's an Olympic level sprinter. That's not how they're training. Um, a lot of these players, uh, they're, they're training them primarily in their start. And then they're not really worried about, you know, foot placement and all that um, for, for the final 20 hours of the dash. So you're getting a ton of pure athletic information. Now for uh, a position where you're kind of surprised where it might matter, the, the 20 yard split for say offensive linemen, I would suspect that the reason that that might correlate with, um, with future performance might just be because the transition from the 10 to the 20 and the 20 to the, the second half of the 20 um, that transition requires a lot of balance and, and it's actually somewhat similar to the drive phase offensive linemen go to, to get out of their stance. Um, and, and that that's mostly a guess of mine. I, I can't say for sure that that's why that would be the case, but um, one really important aspect for an offensive lineman in terms of their technique is how well they uncoil and, and how well they keep their, their knees ahead of their hips as they're uncoiling and, and, and stuff like that. And it looks actually very similar to how you transition from running kind of head first as a, as a sprinter to, to running, you know, stand up as a sprinter. And that typically occurs at the, at the 20 yard mark. So I would imagine that that kind of quirk of the way that, that um, offensive linemen play and the way that humans run might have something to do with why those scores could matter because the better you handle that transition in the drive phase might be uh, 
you know, related to how well you uncoil as an offensive lineman as you strike someone uh, getting out of your stance. So um, there's all kinds of reasons that that flying 20 can matter. All I can do is speculate, but I've, I've done a lot of work looking into this and I've come up with a couple of theories that even if they're not true, at least sound pretty good. You know what? They do sound really good. And one of the things that you kind of mentioned with the, the 40 yard dash is these guys are, are training for specifics when it comes to how the NFL combine does it. Uh, are they utilizing this information to kind of see how well guys train for the event at, in comparison to how their tape is to see how well they can be coached? Is that like another element that's maybe an unintended consequence for these players? Yeah, for sure. And I, and I would say that it is probably not you know, a huge factor in their evaluation of a player's coachability or anything like that, but I'm sure it's a factor. Um, so for example, I think one really interesting case study would be, um, I don't know if you remember um, uh, PJ Dawson or Paul Dawson from TCU. He's a linebacker prospect. He's a little yeah. undersized. Yeah. And, you know, he wasn't really the fastest linebacker, but I think because he was undersized, a lot of people expected him to be a little bit quicker. And, and he ran just an awful 40 at the combine. And uh, he dropped off of a lot of boards. Well, it turns out that um, if you talk to, or apparently NFL coaches talked to some of the strength and conditioning staff over at TCU, you know, he was not, you know, he didn't develop a reputation for being the hardest worker or anything like that. And so um, if he had turned in just a generic subpar 40 yard dash time for somebody who was like 225 at linebacker, you know, that probably would have been fine. But I think it set off warning bells that he just didn't even train very well for the 40 yard dash at all. And so when it came to, you know, the, the week by week training that you have to do to get ready for game day, you know, that weighed a lot in, in coaching evaluations, but maybe the difference between say a fifth round pick and a sixth round pick or a sixth round pick and going undrafted entirely uh, could be a change in your attitude as you finish out um, your college experience and head towards your transition to being a, a professional at the NFL level. A lot of players, you know, you know, you're 20 years old in college. You don't really realize what it means to be an adult yet. Maybe as you realize that you're training for a job, things change and, and that could be something NFL teams take advantage of. And you've seen a lot of players that, you know, didn't have a reputation for being, you know, really remarkable workers in, in college turn into some of the hardest workers in the NFL. You know, maybe if you if you handled the, the combine training phase, well, that's a sign that you could be that kind of person. Uh, and, and, and somebody potentially like PJ Dawson, you know, didn't necessarily do that. And, and so that was kind of another, you know, tick mark in the box of, of hey, we kind of like his tape. He's got decent instincts, but, you know, he's not a super athlete. He's undersized. You know, for this to really work out, he has to be a hard worker, and we hear he's not. Okay, he didn't seem to very, work very hard to, to train for the combine. I guess it's not there. I think that's just kind of the final thing. But I, I think it is useful, but I, I think it's maybe it, when you're evaluating a player's coachability, maybe 5%, possibly 10% if you don't have a ton of information. Maybe they're a D2 prospect. You don't have a ton of contacts. But um, maybe just a small percentage of your overall evaluation of that particular trait, um, how well they, how hard they work or how well they take to technique training, which uh, sometimes that can be hard to disaggregate, but, but is equally important. Wow. That was, that was a lot of really good stuff, man. Uh, and I think that Paul Dawson case is a really good example, as you alluded to, of just how that work ethic piece can re really make a difference. Uh, I kind of want to get in a little more in depth Viking wise, even though all this stuff is just fascinating. I kind of want to talk about skill players. Uh, one of the things that you kind of uh, mentioned, like tight ends and wide receivers and how, how they're valuing some of these players, they've been really consistent with how they've drafted and uh, assigned tight ends. 
But then you have kind of the anomaly with uh, Bucky Hodges and that, uh, that kind of athlete is somebody that uh, really compares to some of the best uh, tight ends in football. Like you've got uh, George Kittle, Evan Ingram, Gerald Everett, OJ Howard, some of the better guys with similar athletic scores, but he ended up bombing. Uh, are the Vikings going to kind of stay to their guns and really pick that consistent type player like Kyle Rudolph, or are they going to uh, eventually move the needle and maybe take an athletic freak one more time and give it another shot? Yeah. I mean, they did try that a little bit with Michael Pruitt too. You know, that that's a guy that, that had plus athleticism, not nearly as good as Bucky Hodges or anything like that, but, but something they considered. And then of course, Irv Smith, you know, he blew up the 40 at the combine. The rest of his athletic scores weren't, you know, remarkable. I would say that, that Hodges certainly outshined him in, in, in terms of total athletic score. Uh, and so you can't really compare Irv Smith to say Noah Fant or TJ Hawkinson or, or Gerald Everett or Evan Ingram in the same way. But, you know, it is something that they value. Um, I, I'm kind of curious how they're going to use Irv Smith going forward just to see if that's something that, um, you know, they'll, they'll pay back that investment just because he's got such a great 40 time and, and great straight line speed. But um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, the tight ends that they've um, signed an undrafted free agency or, or drafted, you know, they've been the Tyler Conklin types, the Kyle Rudolph types where, um, they don't post necessarily subpar 40 times or anything like that. Um, but they're, they're not at the top of, of the athletic charts. And I think part of that is that, um, because tight ends are asked to do so much, you know, individual workouts just don't tell us very much. I mean, you have to basically combine, um, offensive lineman testing with wide receiver testing to get a really good, um, idea of a tight end. And, and you, and you honestly, you just can't combine it like that. Um, just because of the, all of the things that tight ends are asked to do and, and, and the unique kind of size, uh, area that they occupy in the NFL, six, five, two fifty, something like that. Um, so, uh, it is it is tough to apply combine metrics specifically at tight end, and so speed becomes pretty seductive for a lot of GMs uh, because it's it's the, it's the one that's the easiest to translate in the way that you think about how this player is going to be used. Um, but yeah, I, I would expect that kind of going forward um, that they would want to kind of dip their toes back in. I just think it's not going to be as big of a of a priority as it used to be um, because I think that now that they have Irv Smith, they've got somebody who can be kind of a field stretcher um, who can attack the seams. They may be looking for a blocking type like a Rhett Ellison, you know, like a, um, uh, geez, I'm, I'm losing. Uh, they, they, they've, they've drafted a lot of, of blocking right, types. David Morgan? Yeah, David Morgan. Exactly. Perfect. That's exactly what I was trying to think of. Or, you know, even like a Ryan Timperio in undrafted free agency. Just somebody that um, can, can fulfill the other function. Um, so they could essentially fill both tight end positions. Because for the Vikings, it's not, you know, tight end. It's F or U or F or R. It depends on what the other letter is for the tight end or, or H back or something like that. Is that they've got essentially two tight end positions. So they might be looking to fill the other tight end position. And so it may not be as important. And David Morgan ran one of the slowest 40s of any successful NFL tight end. And, and successful is like, you know, a, a broad term here. But he ran one of the slowest 40s I've ever seen for a tight end that ended up um, making it to a second contract. So, um, yeah, that, that's a, it, it's, it, it might be that because they essentially have two tight end positions that they may no longer um, be as aggressive about grabbing those athletes. But I think if somebody like a Bucky Hodges falls, which I think is exactly what happened. I don't think they were particularly high on him, but in the sixth round, he was a, he was a great steal. Um, I, I think that they would, you know, take a shot because, you know, Kyle Rudolph's probably no, not much longer for the Vikings and Tyler Conklin isn't really panning out in a huge way. I think he's an asset, but you know, somebody that you could certainly add competition for and not feel regret about it. Uh, and so certainly I, I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to go after an athletic tight end, but I don't think it's going to be their priority. No, 
And just kind of thinking about things uh, from my perspective, and uh, I kind of see where you're coming from. And I was thinking maybe they would take a shot at a guy like Kyle Pitts and move Irv Smith Jr. to the H back position, but it just seems like they don't. <laughs> that they don't would be so of... fun. I just I don't think that they're going to go after uh, Kyle Pitts with the number of needs that they have. I I agree with you completely, but man, that would be that would be really a ton of fun, fun sure. especially because when you talk about wide receiver, it's just well known the Vikings need a number three, and you broke down that they kind of view the receiver positions as X, Y, and Z. And when when you have a guy like Jefferson and you have a guy like Thielen, who let's be honest, they can kind of do a little bit of everything. How does that prioritize for the Minnesota Vikings is who may, who they might want to go after? Are they really going to take a best player available or are they going to try and pick a guy like they tried with Laquan Treadwell in the X? That's a really interesting question. And I think it, it really depends on, on Kubiak's philosophy for receivers. Uh, and so when you take a look at, at, at Kubiak players historically, and there's been a split usually in role, but it, it isn't always important. Like if I remember, um, with uh, with the Ravens, he had a speed guy and and a possession guy. With the with the Broncos, he he tended to have a possession guy and then a couple of other guys around that. Um, but you know, I don't think it's as important as it just kind of worked out for for Kubiak. Um, obviously, you know, in 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 Houston, he had Andre Johnson and then just kind of everybody else. But um, I, I think that for the Vikings, what this does for them, and and this again is just pure speculation. I don't have enough kind of to go off of to say with any degree of certainty for, for this specific question, but I think it, it primarily deprioritizes positions. I don't think that they're going to go out of their way to try and grab a red zone threat or grab kind of a big body or anything like that. Um, I think more likely they have just so many players capable of playing in the slot that they might just deprioritize players that they view as slot only. Um, so if there is like a Hunter Renfro type in the draft, you know, they may say, Hey, this guy's really talented, but I don't know how he's going to see the field. You know, we've got, you know, Chad Beebe. And if we don't have Chad Beebe, we've got two really excellent slot players in Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson. We've got so many players that can play in the slot. You know, I would rather have somebody compete for BC Johnson's job on the outside, you know? And so they may say, you know, Hey, Hunter Renfro in a normal draft, you know, he would be a fourth round grade for us. Um, but you know, we're going to have to drop him to the sixth round and that would lead to somebody like the Raiders being able to draft ahead of them in the fifth round. Right. And so, um, I think it leads to a deprioritization of some position groups rather than a prioritization of a specific role outside of that. So if they see a speed guy, they might be interested. If they see a possession guy, they might be interested. But I don't think that they're going to go out of their way to make sure that that player fits a specific role in the offense because Thielen and Jefferson are both deep threats. They're also both slot threats. They're also both possession threats. They're also both red zone threats. They're also both possession guys. Like it's just, it's really incredible all the things that they can do and all the positions that they can play. And, and the fact that they can both win against press like a big receiver or, or win as a, as a flanker um, off of press, you know, that, that sort of stuff is pretty difficult to find. And they have two of them and they've had two of them for a while, you know, cause they had digs before that. So um, it is it is likely, I think, to change their priorities, but in kind of a different direction where they'll deprioritize the slot and reprioritize players that can play on the outside a little. And I think it, when you're thinking about a guy higher up in the draft, they're just more valuable when they can play on the outside. And I, I really hope that they take that prioritization uh, seriously because it would be nice to have a third wide receiver. Yeah, I kind of... Sure. I kind of want to move forward because that you had a quote when talking about uh, defensive ends that kind of correlates to how the Vikings have viewed defensive tackles. And I'm really curious to hear your perspective. The Vikings over the course of the past like six, seven years have made numerous attempts to make uh, high athlete defensive ends into defensive tackles. 
And you said about edge players, it's difficult to really create pass fails for the position because players drafted to play edge rush range between 240 and 290, meaning what works in terms of agility or explosion at one weight won't really work at another. Yet the Vikings are taking guys, moving them inside and asking them to gain weight uh, with their athletic profile. So how are they expecting to get that kind of causation uh, when you highlight it right there, just based on their varying weights that that kind of athleticism, agility, or explosion won't necessarily correlate. Like how does, how are the Vikings viewing that? Yeah, I, I would say that the Vikings are very likely um, creating weight adjusted metrics. And so uh, what that means is that they can create essentially an expected um, explosion score or an expected broad jump an expected vertical leap for a player at his position based on their weight. So if a player weighs, you know, 290. And I think I have to, I have to change that quote because now we're seeing 220 pound edge rushers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if you've got a player who weighs 290 and they, and they broad jump, you know, hundred inches, um, which I think was that nine, two, I think. Yeah. Um, if they broad jump nine to hundred inches, you know, that's way more impressive than a player doing that at 240, Right. And so you essentially say, well, at, at what weight, uh, and, and versus kind of what explosion can we expect in the broad jump? are we going to get out of this player? Uh, and so, you know, that doesn't, you know, translate one-to-one when a player, you know, gains weight, they're not going to suddenly, you know, um, jump at the same proportions as they did at a different weight. Every player gains weight differently. And it also depends on how you gain weight. If you're focused on lower body explosion as you work out, or if you focus on kind of upper body strength, as you work out, you're going to kind of lose in some areas and gain in some other areas. You know, some players when they gain weight, get faster because um, they're generating explosion while some players or most players will get slower because you're adding more weight that you have to, you have to win your thrust ratio over. So um, it, it doesn't translate one-to-one, but it gives you a general idea, you know, of, of how a player is going to do. And you can say, Hey, you know, we know that this player at say 260 uh, jumped 110 inches, right? So that's what nine ten or something like that, or uh, that's ten feet actually. Um, nope, no, it's, it's not nine two nine two. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's 110 inches, right? Well, that's that's pretty good uh, at 260. So we're gonna have them bulk up all the way to 280. So we're gonna want, um, we're gonna expect that explosion to decrease, and and for our 280 pound defensive tackles, you know, we expect an explosion of at least 100 inches. Well, our our formula says that that is very likely for a player that jumps 110 at 260 or something along those lines. So I think that that's that ends up what 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 they being what they have to do. Um, also for those players that that have to transition inside, players like James Lynch uh, and for a while Jalen Holmes and Afadi Adenabo and kind of Hercules Mata'afa, although he's a defensive tackle in college and they just kind of moved him around a bunch. Um, they also want to make sure that that player has the, the psychological capability to play inside. And so they actually have um, psychological tests that are really important for if they project a player to switch a position in the NFL, um, you know, what, what psychological traits are really important in that position historically. And, and so for someone like James Lynch, they found, you know, he had that, that mix of psychological traits, you know, whatever it was that they're testing. Uh, and I, I think it's just because you get beat up a lot uh, on the inside versus on the outside. Uh, and so you, you need to have the wherewithal to stand that. So I think that that's a big part of it too, but no, that is, that is a huge conundrum for 
um, a team that looks at a, a remarkably productive prospect like James Lynch, who, who led the league in pressures or led the FBS in pressures uh, when, when he left Baylor. Uh, and, and they say, hey, this guy is a really good football player. I just don't know how he's going to translate. But we want him on the team um, because he's, he's really excellent. But if there's a, a knockout risk factor, we want to know so that we can kind of value him appropriately. And so they'll rely on their analytics staff to be able to kind of generate um, at, what, at what risk level you'd be willing to kind of make that bet. They made that bet with Hercules Mata'afa. Um, again, a, a different kind of position switch, um, but he was the most productive player in the NFL when the Vikings uh, grabbed him out of undrafted free agency, right? Um, you know, that, or and not the NFL, the FBS. Uh, and so uh, le- I think led um, all FBS players in, in tackles for loss that year, despite playing at like 240 pounds of defensive tackle. Um, you know, th- they'll say, well, that production is probably not an accident. Um, we just need to make sure they meet certain athletic measurements. And, and if they do, we'll draft them. If they don't, well, we're still interested. We'll probably sign them an undrafted free agency. And so that's probably kind of what they're doing is that they're establishing various levels of risk tolerance based off of weight adjusted metrics. That makes a ton of sense. Uh, just uh, being able to create a metric that kind of uh, like almost like a, uh, like a BMI chart where based on your height and weight, you can kind of expect a certain number and, that be able to correlate with that, I think is awesome. Uh, I'm kind of running out of time here, Reefs, and I don't want to keep you too long. So I got one more question for you and then we'll kind of wrap it up. Cornerback has really been an interesting position for the Vikings and kind of how they prioritize it. Um, They've been prioritizing speed, but lately they've, they've kind of been uh, backing away from some of the trends as you kind of mentioned. And I'm curious because both Jeff Gladney and Cameron Dantzler kind of, don't really fit the qualities that they want for length. Uh, Dancer definitely didn't fit any quality for speed and uh, how their selections are kind of uh, painting a picture for maybe how they want to move forward with the position or are they just anomalies because they were just great players? Yeah, I, I think that they're changing what they're looking for in the position for sure. Um, I, part of the the mystery surrounding Cameron Dancer, I think is that um, they were pretty relieved to see that, that he ran what he did at his virtual pro day, which, you know, I expressed a ton of skepticism towards, but him and he's playing out of his mind right now. So I guess I'm wrong. Um, but uh, uh, one of the issues with Dantzler is that um, he uh, weighed 180 pounds in college soaking wet. Like they could not get him to add weight. Uh, and so one of the things that, that he trained for heading into the combine was to clock in the right weight because you just cannot have a 170 pound outside corner in the NFL. Um, and he weighed in at 180 pounds, I think. And, um, and, and a lot of that was bad weight. And so he ran pretty poorly. And I think the Vikings were pretty confident that that was not as true, um, athletic ability. And they figured like, Hey, SEC weight programs and nutrition programs are fine, but, um, you know, will have a better control over, over how he trains and what he eats than a high school program or even a college program does. Um, and, and he'll maybe mature into his body because he's, he's, you know, hitting his athletic potential at 25, not 21. So um, I think that that was just part of the, of the calculation they made. And, and I think if, if Dantzler had kind of aced everything from a, a weight speed perspective at the combine, if he came in at 190 and ran a 438, you know, I think he would have gone in the first round to the Vikings or somebody else. Like his film was just remarkable. So, um, you know, that was something where they they made a calculation about what kind of risks they wanted to take. They valued that player based off of that risk and then decided, 
you know, to us, he's a late second round pick and then he was available in the third round. So they picked him. Uh, and so, um, you know, that's, that's just kind of a, a risk calculus thing that that's working out really wonderfully for them. Um, but yeah, I, I think it speaks to, uh, especially with Jeff Gladney, the fact that they're willing to get a little bit shorter at the position. And I think part of that is just that everybody was looking for length at corner. And so you just ran out of corners that were good and long. Uh, and so, um, they, they had to, in order to acquire talent, you know, Zimmer loves long corners, but he loves talented corners even more. Right. And so I think in order to acquire talent, they had to relax that threshold that they were using pretty harshly too, pretty stringently for a while. Um, and so I think that that was part of it. I think that they also saw that with the way that, that the league was moving, which was, you know, kind of, there's a lot of cover three. So we kind of have to figure out what's next. And for the Vikings, that was cover four. Um, they would need players that, that didn't necessarily have the same qualities. And so they would look for players that were really physical, which is something that you can really use as a cover four corner, because you can really push a lot of your assignments to the sideline, which is exactly what they're doing right now. Uh, and, and I think if you describe Gladney and Dantzler in one word, it would be physical. So I think that that's, something that you don't really see in combine metrics, but it's something that, that, that gets expressed in the way that they scout. And so the combine metrics overall seem to be less important, except of course the flying 20 that we talked about at the beginning of the show, they still care a lot about that. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, you know, they used to care about explosion a little bit more for corners, especially the vertical. Um, like you said, they cared about length. Now it seems like, you know, they're prioritizing college production. The guys that they grabbed, uh, Harrison Hand, in addition to, to Gladney and Dancer, all had a ton of pass deflections in college, just like led their respective conferences in, in pass deflections over the course of either their final year or their final three years uh, in, in college. Like they were like, I don't know, Gladney had like something like 25 over three years or something absurd like that. Um, you know, that I think is, is something that they paid a lot more attention to because I mean, everyone kind of knows, you know, Trey Waynes and Xavier Rhodes, as good as they were at their peaks, just were not getting their hands on the ball very often. Uh, and so I think they wanted to change that, you know, Mackenzie Alexander famously didn't have an interception in high school or college, right? Like his first you know, interception since middle school occurred his second year in the NFL. And it was kind of a surprise that that even happened. Uh, and I think they just wanted more ball production. So I think that that was part of it too, is that they started looking at um, production metrics just a little bit more to kind of evaluate if the player has the kind of instincts they need to play a different style of defense, like the cover four instead of the cover three the Vikings have had been using. Yeah. I think your comment about the ball production really made a lot of sense. And just, it, it feels like, these guys being more physical is just kind of paying off more and more, which I remember at peak Xavier Rhodes, he was very physical at the line of scrimmage and he was able to knock guys off their block and really take advantage of them uh, at the beginning of their routes. And hopefully we can start seeing that from uh, Gladney Dancer moving forward. Uh, Arif, I just want to say thank you for taking the time talking to me about this. I could talk about this all day, but I want to try and uh, Keep it short for the people so they're not listening <laughs> to me for three and a half hours. Uh, where can people find you and what do you have going in the works right now? Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm primarily over at The Athletic, theathletic.com slash author slash Arif dash Hassan. Um, I'm writing both uh, Viking-centric articles and, and some stuff nationally as well. Uh, so I just wrote my Players of the Week piece, which obviously is, is always well-received. Every fan base loves my selections. Nobody complains. And uh, it's, it's something that uh, causes no controversy whatsoever. So you can head over there and find that. I'm also writing a couple of national pieces. Uh, I'll be writing about the Steelers, which 
um, I, the original idea for the piece is, are the Steelers as good as they, as their undefeated record? And I pitched it last week. And then of course they lost to Washington. So now the piece is a little bit less interesting, but, um, I wrote uh, very similar articles about the bills and the bears. I said, the bills were real. The bears are not. Those have aged really remarkably well, hoping to bat three for three on that. That's going to come out soon. And then I've also got a piece about how the Vikings might be able to take on uh, the Buccaneers and kind of advance their playoff hopes. So that's coming soon as well. Fantastic. I look forward to reading those and, I appreciate you, Arif. Uh, Thank you very much and have a wonderful night, everyone.